The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. For those of you that are here and for those of you that are with us online, I want to say, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you today. How many of you have seen, you've had to have seen it, the commercial, the Allstate commercial with Mayhem. You know what I'm talking about? I love that commercial, particularly probably the one that where the guy is uh, the dog and barking. So I saw this meme come up the other day. You know, Time Magazine has person of the year. And as I thought about 2020, this meme came up. Mayhem, Time person of the year. I love at the bottom, it says, enough said. That's how we feel about 2020. I mean, you can't overstate that enough. I mean, it began this way, and many of you might not remember because so many things have happened this year already in 2020. You may not remember, but early in 2020, and I particularly remember this because it was in a place where I used to live, there was a plague of grasshoppers in East Africa. I mean, biblical proportion plagues. There was eating crops, and destroying homes and causing havoc all over the place. But for us, what took our attention, and then there was this event of impeachment, which dominated all kind of social media, a lot of social media and uh, the news. And from whatever perspective you looked at it, it felt like this, that we were walking into something that was a total mess. If that was enough, and then what happened was a pandemic where we were all uncertain about our health, our family's health. I mean, this pandemic was so bad, then what happened was it sent us all into lockdown. I mean, I don't remember counting up all the days that we were at home or locked down or things were shut down, but it was something like six weeks. And then if that wasn't bad enough, what came next inevitably was an economic decline. I mean, you saw lines like this all over, not just Oklahoma, but around our nation, people unemployed and the numbers just kept coming out. And then if that wasn't bad enough, we just recently had, uh, well, not so recently, but then there was the killing of George Floyd and the rays of protest and the marches that happened over uh, injustice in our country. And then at the same time, there were, pro there were riots and looting. I mean, damage to people's businesses and lives and it wasn't good. And then on top of all that, we recently had Hurricane Laura that just devastated South Texas, parts of Louisiana. And this is a picture of what that hurricane did just about a month ago. In fact, Kim was telling me there's still, she's still getting calls for nurses to go down to South Texas because they're in need of still medical support from the hurricane. And then if that wasn't 
crazy enough. All over the news right now, the whole West Coast seems to be on fire. And particularly, this affects, my wife is from Vancouver, Washington, and we have lots of friends in Portland, Oregon. We know people that we've called that are literally on a standby to evacuate their house. They've been told, here's what you need to pack up, and you need to be ready to go when we give the call. And this is not people that live out in the country. They live in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. And then we're in a political season that may be the most contentious time that most of us have felt. I mean, it just feels tense in this season that we're coming up to an election. And we can't ignore it. It feels really contentious. And given all of this that's going on from the locusts to, uh, uh, to the pandemic, to being quarantined, to then the economic problems, then to uh, social injustice and riots and hurricanes and fires and a political contentious season, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like an apocalypse is happening. If there's any year to talk about the apocalypse, it is 2020. But that word apocalypse, the way we typically use it, the way I've just used it to talk about the end of the world, is not the way that the Bible uses that language. Although we tend to think about that because sometimes we associate it with the end of the world. But in fact, this word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally means to uncover something, to unveil something, to unveil something that we might see something that we have not seen before. That word apocalypse literally means revelation. And so if you open your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. I'm sorry, chapter 1, 1 through 3, it says this. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants that what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of prophecy, prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. Now, John uses these two phrases, what must soon take place, and because the time is near, that for the readers that originally received this letter, this was something that was going to happen soon in their life. In fact, if you go on to Revelation chapter 1, 10 and 11, it says this. On the, day, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, that is, John was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you can see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum. 
to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are all seven different cities in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Now, as we introduce the book of Revelations, the book of Revelation, there are lots and lots of ways to interpret Revelation. How we're going to interpret it is that we're going to look at what it meant to those in the first century. Now, our approach is not trying to say any other approach is necessarily wrong, but we want you to know from the outset that we recognize there's a lot of different ways of reading Revelation, and this is not a sermon series to debate that. We're not debating that. We're just saying this is how we're going to approach it. The time is near. Stuff is about to take place, and it's to these seven churches. And if you go on to verse chapter 1, verse 9, it gives us some insight into what may be happening in the lives of these churches, at least what's happening in the life of John. So chapter 1, verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice three words that are going on. One is suffering, kingdom, and endurance. That these three things give us some insight to what's going on. Now, this word, particularly suffering, it may be referring to uh, what they may be experiencing the Christians in Asia Minor to uh, persecution. And there, there might have been some of that. There might have been some of that going on. And you for sure read Revelation in light of suffering. But on another way, and even if there is persecution going on in Asia Minor, here's one of the ways that I think that John is talking about Revelation, or he's talking about this vision and what's happening in their suffering is that there is enormous pressure in all of the Roman Empire, but particularly these seven churches. There's an enormous pressure about allegiance. In fact, John may be on the island of Patmos for political reasons. Usually, if you went against the Roman Empire, if you're from a lower class, they just crucified you or killed you. But if you're from a bit of more elite, you often got exiled because if you didn't show the proper allegiance or there was political problems with you and you didn't show the proper allegiance, you got exiled. It may be that he's there exiled as a political. He didn't show enough allegiance. And so here's at least a few ways that they're feeling this pressure of allegiance from the Roman Empire. The first is allegiance to political institutions and order. You gotta understand that all of, in the Roman Empire in the first century, it was all set up like this. It was set up based on a patron-client society. And the politics work like this. The patron, they're the one with access to power and wealth. They're the one that is the ruling class. Their job is to provide economic and legal security to the clients. 
And how this relationship works that if I, if, if, if this patron provides economic and legal security to you, then the response of the clients is to give back respect and show allegiance to the one that has provided your legal security and your economic security. Now, this also shows up in the pressure for allegiances to economic systems as well. Because the patrons or those with power have, they have, that's where the money is. It's where, it's where the resources are. And so in order seemingly to survive in this world economically, you've got to show allegiances into the system. And there's also pressure for social allegiances too. It was well known that in the Roman Empire, cities and principalities and local governments, they competed for honor. And what that looked like was which cities had the best architecture and temples, which cities had the best public spaces and works in order that not only they can get honor, but it would bring in festivals. It would bring in other events. It would bring attention, which would give more honor and power to that city as well as it would bring in good economic gains. And ultimately, ultimately, the one who is the patron or the entity that is the most patron of all in this system is the Roman Empire itself. And at the very top is the emperor. So perhaps one of the things when John says, a companion in your suffering, it's this struggle that there's this enormous pressure that is felt in the Roman Empire to show allegiance to the empire, to the emperor, and to the, all the systems they've created for security. But John gives even a different picture at the beginning of Revelation. If you go a little bit further in verse 12 through 16, he says this. He says, And I turned around to see a voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And the eyes, the eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet, they're like bronze glowing in the furnace. And the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This is a picture of an alternative vision. One to the Roman Empire and two to the Roman Emperor. He uses all this 
dramatic and vivid language. For example, a robe and golden sash. Some of this language comes out in the book of Daniel. It actually begins with him saying, and I saw someone that looked like the son of man. That is a direct reference to the book of Daniel. And by the way, as we go through the book of Revelation, you can hardly touch a chapter where you don't find references in the Old Testament. It is rich with imagery in the sense that Christians that know their scripture will go, I know what he's talking about when they hear those images. So he sees the son of man, which is this political image and this political figure in the book of Daniel. And then it says, and he's wearing a robe, which kings, which priests wore down to their feet and a golden sash. And that's what kings would wear. He says, he says, white hair, which is a picture in the Old Testament of the ancient of days, of God, of wisdom. The eyes that are like fire that can penetrate deep into your heart. The bronze feet that are able to trample over any powers. Like rushing waters. His voice is like a rushing water and a sword. All this very odd imagery. But even we know that sword imagery. This is, he speaks the words of God. And finally, it says he holds the seven stars in his hand. This is imagery that even in the Roman Empire, that there was believed and they even would talk about stars but that there were heavenly beings that oversaw different powers and principalities. And what he's saying is, is that this son of man that's standing in John's vision, those stars which look over and oversee all the powers, he holds them in the palm of his hand. This is a picture of someone who has authority and it's juxtaposed against the most powerful authority in the known world at that time, the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. So here's the problem in the book of Revelation. The problem is seduction by the empire. The powers are calling for allegiance, political allegiance, Economic allegiance, social allegiance. The book of Revelation is this. The book of Revelation is a call to have faith in God rather than the empire. Revelation is about allegiances. To be citizens of a different kingdom. Now, Revelation is challenging for us, for sure. We were joking in the, uh, uh, in the green room before that there are so many songs, and by the way, we're going to sing them. There's so many songs that we have, that we sing at the Springs, that Christians sing, that have their language from Revelation. So Brett joked, he said, well, if we can't understand Revelation, at least we'll try to sing about it. And there may be some truth to that. But the first reason why it's challenging to us is that it is apocalyptic language. I mean, 
It's strange language to our ears, language about dragons and beasts and lamb, about bowls and scrolls with seals and trumpets. There's plagues, there's four horsemen, there's a strange number, there's lots of strange numbers. There are heavenly scenes with angels and cities described in fantastic terms. We even read some today. There's one like the son of man with his eyes of fire, his feet of bronze, a sword coming out of his mouth and his face face shows like the sun. It's also challenging because revelation is poetry. And poetry not only goes after your mind, not just your mind, poetry, it goes after your heart. Poetry wants to shape your deepest longings in the world. And when we want information, we typically don't go to poems for that. But the second reason Revelation is challenging is that it's prophecy. In fact, John says at the beginning, this is a prophecy. And prophecy is usually we think about prophets as future telling, but prophets aren't future telling, although they may talk about the future. They're not future telling. The prophecy is about bringing God's vision of the world to the here and now. Prophets say, the prophets say that God is speaking in the present, not yesterday. God is speaking in the now, not tomorrow. It is not a password that can be analyzed and then walked away from. And it is not a future word that we can, can, that we can fantasize about as some escape. It is a personal address. He says to those churches, the time is near. It is a message about how Christians in the first century are to live in the Roman Empire. We've prayed lots about preaching and prepared a lot about preaching the book of Revelation because we think it's relevant for this time. In, in fact, I, was, I had an assignment where I had students, this is just anecdotal, but I had an assignment where I had students write about, unrelated to Revelations or anything that we're talking about, write about the five most common conversations that they have. And I was shocked. I didn't read all of them, but out of the ones I read, over 80% of them said that politics was a common conversation on campus. We think it's relevant for this time. And Revelation is about politics. There is so much political language in the book of Revelation. Now, let me say this. Here's what this sermon series is not about. This sermon series is not about who to vote for. Make that very clear. This sermon series is not about any particular party, political party. It's not about those things. That is not our intention at all. And it even makes me hesitant to even begin to talk about politics. I have my own reservations and hesitations. 
in the world, I get hesitant about talking about it. And particularly at church, I get hesitant about talking about it. Because I love this church. I love each of you deeply. And my fear is, both in the world and here, that if I talk about it, it may divide us. I've got that real fear. But then I've come to this realization that if that statement is true, that if talking about politics will divide us, then I come to the realization that we're already too late. That we're already divided. And just talking about it reveals the ways that we're already divided. USA Today came out with a survey that said, regardless of political party, one, one out of five Americans not only view someone that has uh, the opposite political views, they not only view them as wrong, they actually see them as evil. One in five see them as evil. And we have a wide range of political views in this church. There's no doubt about that. But it pains me to think that that statistic, one out of five, it pains me to even think that that might be true among us. And the church is a place, it should be a place, where we try to figure out together what it means that Jesus is Lord. From all of our different backgrounds and perspectives, we're trying to figure out what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. It is the place that we together sort out our allegiances and how we live in the world. And if we can't do that here, my fear is, is that we'll be blinded to the idols and allegiances that we hold dear. I need you to help me understand what it means that Jesus is Lord of my life. That Jesus is Lord of the world. So this is about allegiances. It's a message about how Christians in the first century are to live in the Roman Empire. And therefore, we want to do this. We want to hold up for you the book of Revelation as a mirror we have no intentions about naming what all these symbols mean. We don't think that would be responsible. That's not what we're going to do. But we're going to talk about the book of Revelation and what it meant and then hold it up in a mirror to you and ask the question, what do you see? And if you feel challenged, we want you to reflect on your own allegiances. We want you to reflect on your own identity. Is it, that you are, is it that you and I are Americans who happen to be Christians? Or is it that we are Christians who happen to live in America? And if you're challenged by the book of Revelation, first ask yourself, and this is for me too. 
First, let us ask ourselves personally, what allegiances do I hold that are causing me to feel challenged? This is not a time to point out other people's allegiances. That's not the point. But it's to look in the mirror of revelation and say, what allegiances do I hold? Do I hold allegiance to the lamb that was slain? Revelation seeks to unveil the idols of the empire in order that we may evaluate our own allegiances and see how Jesus is Lord and to understand that we are citizens of a different kingdom. Let's stand and sing.